It's on now. There we go. You know, it's one thing if Zach does that, but me, I can't, I can't do that sort of thing. As I was saying, last week we read Matthew 10, 16 through 39. And in that passage, Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus said those words during an extended conversation with his disciples about the prospect of violent persecution. He warned them about being put on trial, being flogged, being betrayed by their own families, all for their faith in him. Jesus made it clear to his disciples that following him may be a source of incredible suffering in their lives, even to the point of dying on a cross. However, Jesus also reassured his disciples that they will not be alone. The Holy Spirit will give them words to say. They'll be following in Jesus' footsteps. And God the Father sees them, knows them, and loves them through it all. But as we pick up today in Matthew 16, Jesus says almost the exact same words he said in Matthew 10. Once again, he says his disciples must take up a cross and follow him. So as I was preparing the sermon this week, one of the questions I found myself asking was this. What's the difference between these two passages where Jesus says the same thing? Are you doomed to sit here and listen to the same sermon that you heard last week, which might be worse than a cross? Well, the answer is no. You're not going to hear the same sermon you heard last week about facing violent persecution for bearing witness to Christ and being willing to die for the faith if it comes down to it. Because even though Jesus says the same words in today's chapter that he said last week, Take up your cross and follow me. This chapter is different from Matthew chapter 10. This chapter isn't so much about persecution and violence and death as that chapter was. But the beauty of today's chapter is that today's chapter may actually help Christians like us. Christians who are not facing violent persecution or death for our faith. Matthew 16 can help us answer the question, what might it look like for Christians like us, regular old people outside of second century Rome, outside of the modern day Middle East or China? What does it look like for people like us to obey Jesus's command to take up our crosses and follow him? So open up to Matthew 16, verse 13. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read our passage, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Uh, Father, thank you for the privilege, the joy, the opportunity to gather week in and week out and worship you. No matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what has changed between last Sunday and today, uh, good or bad, positive or negative, joyful or sorrowful, uh, one thing remains the same, and that is what we celebrate each and every Sunday, uh, that your son came and lived and died and rose and ascended. But Father, on top of looking back to what's happened in the past, we look forward to what happens in the future, uh, that one day your son will return. But Father, in between, 
that time and now, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. I pray that you would help us to take up our crosses and follow your son Jesus, no matter what that might look like for each of us. Help us to bear witness to Christ boldly, courageously, confidently, uh, no matter what the world throws at us. Father, we love you, and we ask you to bless our time together as we read your word, as we sing together, as we pray together. We ask you to bless our time together and bless this church. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, like we've done throughout this sermon series, let's take a quick glance at the things that happened between last week's passage, Matthew 10, and this week's passage, Matthew 16. There are three big things, three big things that continue to happen in these chapters. The first is that there are more miracles. Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. He feeds two massive crowds of people with little to no food. He walks on water in the Sea of Galilee. All pretty impressive. And these miracles ought to serve as a boost to Jesus' claims about who he is. It's clear that no ordinary man can do things like this. So maybe Jesus really is the Son of God. But then on top of there being more miracles, there are more teachings. And specifically more parables. Jesus tells these stories about a sower spreading seed and a farmer whose field is sabotaged with weeds, hidden treasure, and fishing. He tells these simple stories to communicate profound truths about God and his kingdom. But it seems as though very few people, including his own disciples, even understand what these parables actually mean. So we have more miracles, more teachings, and then we have more confrontations. The Pharisees are continually bothered with Jesus's actions on the Sabbath. They even accuse him of being demon-possessed. The scribes demand signs, as if they haven't seen enough already, and are scandalized that Jesus doesn't honor religious traditions the same way they do. The Sadducees even make an appearance, adding their own efforts to discredit Jesus. Things get so tense that at the beginning of chapter 16, Jesus warns his disciples to avoid the Pharisees and the Sadducees, lest they be led into error themselves. But that brings us to chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So as the passage begins, Jesus is curious what the disciples think about him. Outside of his core group of followers, opinions are mixed. Rumors are flying as to who Jesus might be. 
But what about the disciples? What do they think? They're the ones who know him best. They've had a front row seat for all the miracles, all the teachings, and all the confrontations. So after everything the disciples have seen and heard, who do they say Jesus is? That's when Peter speaks up on behalf of the group. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. It only took 16 chapters, but now we have a formal, full-throated, unashamed announcement of who Jesus really is. That's why Peter's words are referred to as the good confession. It seems as though the disciples finally get it. They finally understand that Jesus really is the Messiah. This is a major breakthrough. And Jesus praises Peter for this confession. However, he also makes it clear that Peter didn't come to this conclusion through his own wit, his own wisdom, his own brilliance. Jesus says that God the Father graciously revealed this truth to him. But nonetheless, Jesus appoints Peter to be the rock that he will build his church upon. Peter will have a unique role and authority moving forward. And you see that especially in the book of Acts. So Jesus promises that the church he's building, the community of people who believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that church will never fall. So verses 13 through 20 are overwhelmingly positive. A lot of good things are happening. But then you get to verse 21, and that's when things get dark. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus launches into this prediction. He tells his disciples that he will go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and be raised. He says this must take place. It must take place. It has to happen this way. It's not just some strategy that Jesus cooked up out of nowhere. It's not some set of tragic circumstances or unfortunate coincidences. It must take place. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's the culmination of Jesus' mission. It's the will of God. But then Peter, God love him. Peter, apparently emboldened by Jesus' praise and paying way more attention to the part about Jesus dying than the part about Jesus rising, is horrified by these words. He pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. He calls the man that he just proclaimed, the Christ, the son of the living God, into the principal's office. Can you imagine having the audacity that Peter displays here? He looks at Jesus and says, this will never happen to you. Me, Peter, the rock, I will not allow it. Over my dead body will you be treated this way, Lord? Again, God loved Peter. He means well. He loves Christ. 
He doesn't want to see Jesus die on a cross, so he rebukes him. But then the tables turn back the right way, and Jesus rebukes Peter with even stronger words and with more authority. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Well, Peter might not realize it, but he's acting like Satan. Back in Matthew chapter 4, before Jesus began his ministry, Satan tempted Jesus to disobey God's will. And Jesus rejected him. Jesus sent Satan packing. In fact, he specifically said, be gone, Satan, which sounds a lot like, get behind me, Satan. Peter is unwittingly stepping in between Jesus and obedience to his father. And you can't do that without getting rebuked. So Peter, the man to whom just moments ago God graciously revealed the most glorious truth in all creation, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, this same man who just moments ago made the good confession is now setting his mind on the wrong things. He's setting his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. Now, all that brings us to the main passage, all that setup, all that preparation. Now we read verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now at first glance, it all sounds pretty similar to what we read last week. Take your cross and follow me. Check. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. Check. But if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you'll find it. Check. All sounds pretty familiar. So what's different in Matthew 16 from Matthew 10? Well, the most obvious difference is the added phrase in verse 24. Two words. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. The Gospel of Luke adds another word to this phrase. In Luke, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily. So in Matthew 10, we read that taking up your cross and following Jesus is about a willingness to suffer violent persecution and potentially even death for the sake of bearing witness to Christ. But like we acknowledged last week, it's also unlikely, though not impossible, but unlikely, that a Christian in Fishers, Indiana in 2019 will ever have to face that sort of hardship. Realistically, the Christians in this room will probably never face a literal cross or the sharp edge of a sword or the prospect of being burned at the stake for following Jesus. Probably not going to happen to us. So in light of that, 
What does it look like for us to take up our crosses and follow Jesus? Well, I think those two words that Jesus included in this passage, deny yourself, deny yourself, I think that might be a good place for us to start. So think more about that phrase, deny yourself. Deny yourself grates against so many common cultural maxims of our day and age. It is very normal for us to hear sayings like, be yourself, express yourself, love yourself, care for yourself, respect yourself, treat yourself. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of those sayings are inherently bad or inherently false all the time. However, let's be honest. That phrase, deny yourself, it just doesn't quite fit with the rest, does it? I mean, sure, we're rightfully moved and rightfully inspired by those people who deny themselves and give their lives for a noble cause. We're moved and inspired by the soldier in battle, the police officer in the line of duty, the fireman rushing into a burning building. But outside of those examples, we don't always celebrate denying ourselves. In fact, some would even say that Jesus' command to deny yourself is unjust, it's oppressive, it could be even harmful. We're taught to serve ourselves above all else, affirm ourselves above all else, feed ourselves above all else. And naturally, our culture offers countless different ways that we can do that. We can do it through unlimited materialism, more money, more possessions, more stuff. We can do it through unrestrained individualism. It's all about me and not anybody else. My life is about my self-fulfillment, regardless of what harm I do to others or what ties or responsibilities I abandon. We can try it through unchecked independence. The idea that no one can tell me what to do, only I know what's best for me. I am the master of my destiny. I am my own God. There are countless other examples of self-serving attitudes that our world encourages, celebrates, and tempts us to. And every single one of them grates against Jesus' words to deny yourself. These attitudes promise us freedom, they promise us purpose, they promise us fulfillment and joy, but they always fall short, every single time. And even if they do bring you some temporary sense of freedom, some temporary sense of purpose and fulfillment and joy in this life, the truth is that they won't stand the test of eternity. So one way we can deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow Jesus, if we're not facing violence and we're not facing persecution and we're not facing death for our faith, one way we can deny ourselves is to abandon these false gods that our world offers us. Deny yourself by refusing to cater to your greed. Deny yourself by placing the interests of others ahead of your own. Deny yourself by acknowledging that there is a Lord out there who knows better than you do. Deny yourself by submitting to that Lord. 
In summary, deny yourself by listening to the rebuke that Jesus gave Peter. Set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. Deny yourself by refusing to buy into our world's narrative that serving yourself, fulfilling yourself, and feeding yourself is your sole reason for existence. Instead, embrace the role that God has given you in his story. That you were created to serve and glorify him above all else. But in addition, for Christians like us not living in the context of violent persecution, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and following Jesus is likely going to be more of a daily affair, to use Luke's word. A daily affair. We're not likely to be in a situation where a person is holding us at gunpoint, forcing us to make a one-time decision to reject Jesus or die. So for us, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses and following Jesus, will probably be a less extreme, unspectacular, and longer-term grind, more so than some dramatic, once-and-for-all, life-or-death decision. For us, denying ourselves will be a lot less heroic and much more every day. It might look like waking up in the morning when you just don't feel like doing the things that you know Christ calls you to do, and yet you do them anyway. It'll look more like continually loving our troublesome neighbors, honoring our aging parents, serving our needy spouses, respecting our rude bosses, or parenting our misbehaving kids, even when we find those callings to be completely exhausting, boring, and unrewarding. They're not going to write any books about that. But for you and me, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and following Jesus may simply be the daily decision to faithfully obey our Lord through the ups and downs of everyday life. Especially when life doesn't go the way we want it to. And when God doesn't do things the way we expect him to. You know, that rebuke that Jesus gave Peter was probably a rude awakening. It was harsh. In Peter's mind, and in the minds of just about everyone like him, the Messiah was going to ride into Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, and make Israel great again. Health, wealth, and prosperity would rain down from heaven, and all would be right in the world. Heck, Peter himself might even get a cushy seat at King Jesus' right hand. But then Jesus starts talking about suffering, being betrayed, dying. It's not exactly gaining the world. And so when Jesus throws a wrench in Peter's self-serving plans, Peter had the audacity to rebuke the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter still doesn't Get it. When Jesus is arrested, he takes out a sword and tries to defend Jesus and gets rebuked once again. It's not until after Jesus dies and rises from the grave that Peter and the rest of the disciples finally understand what Jesus meant all this time. And the truth is that sometimes we can be a little bit like Peter. Not the good version who makes the good confession, but the stubborn version who tried to rebuke Christ. We can set our minds on the things of man and not the things of God. 
We think we can follow Jesus and still hold on to all of our self-serving attitudes and assumptions. And then when our expectations don't come to fruition, when our assumptions prove incorrect, we throw a temper tantrum. Well, in that moment, perhaps we need the same kind of rebuke that Jesus gave Peter. The kind of rebuke that may feel a little bit harsh, may hurt our feelings a little bit, but it might have to in order to get through to us. Maybe we need that occasional rebuke, that occasional reminder about what following Christ does and doesn't look like. For Peter and for us, following Jesus is not about the things of man. It's not about gaining the world. It's about denying yourself and taking up your cross daily. Now that command may not sound all that appealing in this life. And you know what? Let's be honest. It doesn't sound very appealing in this life. But in eternity, it will be worth it. Jesus encourages us to look at the big picture. Think about the day when Jesus will return with his angels and the glory of the Father and all will be judged. Because in that day, those who set their minds on the things of God, those who denied themselves, took up their crosses daily and followed Jesus, those who never gained much in this world but kept their souls, they will be vindicated. So press on. Whether you're called to a short life that ends in a dramatic death for Christ, like we talked about in Matthew 10, or whether you're called to a long grind of daily faithful obedience to Christ, like we talked about today. And when you're tempted to give up, remember the reassurances that Jesus gave his disciples last week. Remember that the Holy Spirit is with you. Remember that God the Father sees you, knows you, and loves you. And remember Christ himself, the one who went to Jerusalem, suffered many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, was killed, and on the third day was raised, in order that those who believe in him would be saved. So deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Doing this might not gain you the whole world, in this life. But by God's grace, you'll still have your soul in eternity. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this rebuke, this reminder that Jesus gives Peter and that in a roundabout way, Jesus also gives us. Thank you for reminding us that following your son is not about the things of man. It's not about gaining the world. More often than not, it's going to look like denying ourselves. It's going to look like taking up our crosses and following your son. And so, Father, help us in this endeavor. We can't do this on our own strength. But you've given us your spirit. And so, Father, I pray that you would empower us, encourage us, enable us to be faithful for the long haul. Empower us to be faithful whether our lives end with a dramatic death for Christ, like we talked about last week, or whether our lives consist of a long, slow, exhausting grind 
of faithfulness and obedience. Father, whatever you've called us to, enable us and empower us to fulfill that calling for your glory. And Father, again, we thank you for Christ, the one who goes before us, the one who took up his cross and died for our sins and rose from the grave. Father, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. Thank you for the calling that you've given us. And thank you for the confidence we have that when you begin this work in us, you will bring it to completion. Help us to be faithful. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.